Voice for Victims podcast. Stand up for what is right and leave a legacy behind for others to follow. I am so happy you decided to take the time to listen to this podcast. Now, go and enjoy the show. Welcome, everyone, to Voice for Victims podcast with your host, Crystal Starnes. Today, we have a special guest coming on the show. His name is Jerry Fanfarelli, and he is from East Hampton, Kentucky, formerly from New Haven. He is a firefighter for over 30 years, and he's coming on the show today to tell us about his career as a firefighter. Let's welcome Jerry Fanfarelli to the show. Hi, Jerry. How are you? Hi. Good morning, Crystal. I'm doing fine. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to correct it. I'm from Connecticut, not Kentucky. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I thought I, That's okay. I, I said it correct, incorrect. I apologize. Yeah, he's from Connecticut. That's all right. That's okay. I don't know what I was thinking. Yeah. I apologize. Um, <laughs> That's all right. Sorry. It, it's, it's been a long night. So, <laughs> anyhow, um, I apologize for that. I wasn't even thinking. Um, so, how? Um, I guess how's the weather where you're at currently? Actually, uh, it's pretty mild today for uh, the Northeast. Um, it's sunny. Uh, there's no clouds in the sky, so today is a, bo- a bonus day for us. We're really enjoying. I'm, I'm really taking in the uh, the warmer weather. I don't know how much longer it's oh. going to last, but we'll take it as long as we can get it, I guess. Right. Yeah, you're lucky. It's still cold here in Pennsylvania, but um, it's yeah. supposed, we're supposed to have like various weather, like rain and snow, I guess, coming in the next couple of days. Yeah, I imagine that's but, for us coming too. When you guys get it, we usually get it a day or two later. So. Okay. Well, I guess um, we could start off with um, telling a little about a little bit about who you are and your background. Sure. Um, well, you know, I'm I'm uh, I was born in New Haven, Connecticut, uh, and I was um, raised in New Haven. I attended university of New Haven. <laughs> I really got around, I guess you might say. Um spent a lot of time uh in that immediate area. Um you know, um we lived in a two family house. My grandparents lived downstairs, we lived upstairs. And uh it was a nice you know, a nice area when I was growing up, small small community. Um it was just outside of the the big city of New Haven. I lived in a suburb called West Haven. Uh, a very small, very small town, you know. Um, and uh, like I said, I attended university there in, in, in New Haven, and I graduated, and then I started my career, what I was going to be doing for the rest of my life. What, um, you you were a firefighter, correct? Yes, I uh, I didn't. It's really strange how life turns out because um, when I was very young, um, I had no idea that I would grow up and, and become a firefighter. Um, my uh, my dream when I was a young boy, be an airline pilot. That's what I wanted to do. In fact, if you look in uh, my uh, year high school yearbook, uh, underneath my name, it says ambition, you know, airline pilot. That's what I wanted to do. And I actually started laying the groundwork for that when I was very young. I was probably about 14. I'd taken my first uh, flight with my grandparents out to uh, Dayton, Ohio, to visit my aunt and uncle. My uncle was in the Air Force. And uh, I just fell in love with it. I just said, this is really what I want to be doing, you know. And uh, So, you know, I started laying the groundwork for that, and I was taking uh, flying lessons and reading every piece of material I can get my hands on, trying to prepare myself for an aviation career. And I even started out my first year of college, I actually started out in aeronautical technology. That was my freshman year. They had a program there that was going to uh, give the uh, graduating class the first shot at um, these pilot jobs out of New Haven, Tweed New Haven Airport, it was a small airline that used to travel, fly from New Haven to uh, LaGuardia, and um, they were given they were going to give us 
first shot at those jobs. So anyway, that was my my goal to become a, uh, an airline pilot. And uh, after the first semester, uh, the uh, the university came to us and said, uh, you know, hate to break the news to you, but <laughs> you know we don't have enough people for the, to continue the program. So they were going to discontinue the aeronautical technology program. And there I was left, you know, trying to decide where to go from there. And um, I was, uh, at the time, I was a a volunteer fireman in uh, my community. Like I said, it was a very small town. And the university was announcing a new program called Fire Science. And uh, it was brand new. No one had ever gone through the program yet. And I decided to... uh, to join in, and I, I was in the very first graduating class of fire science, and basically there were two sides of it. Uh, one was the administrative side, excuse me, uh, and the other one was the engineering side. And those who uh, opted for the engineering side would eventually um, end up designing you know, fire suppression systems and sprinkler systems for high-rise buildings and learning about all the new various techniques that are available for uh, for fighting fires. And the administrative side, which is the one that I entered going, that I uh, ended up going into, um, dealt more specifically with the operations and management of a fire department on a day-to-day basis, you know, how, how fires are fought, things, um, how to handle personnel and things of that nature. So that was more uh, geared for firefighting, whereas the other one was uh, designed for engineers. And um, I really enjoyed the program. It was really uh, a lot of fun. Uh, it was hard work. Uh, we had to take you know, various chemistry courses and learn about the, uh, you know, the science of fire. And it was very interesting. Um, but when I graduated from there, I was immediately uh, hired by an insurance company uh, that looked at my credentials and said, you know, this guy is is the guy we want for the job. And I was going out and I was doing uh, fire and safety work. I should should mention, too, that um, when I received my degree in fire science, I also received an associate's degree. I had a bachelor of science degree in uh, fire science and then an associate's degree in occupational safety, and I received those degrees concurrently when I graduated. So the insurance company grabbed me, and uh, I started doing work for them um, up in the Northeast in fire and safety work. And although the work was interesting, um, I really didn't feel or I couldn't really see how it was impacting the bottom line, you know, my contribution. And I needed to have a more hands-on, you know, approach to things and um, I started thinking about uh, a career in the fire department Um, and a friend of mine uh, came to me one afternoon and he said you know hey uh, the city of New Haven has given a a test for the fire department and uh, I think I think I'd like to take it what about you and I said yeah we should we should really start uh, preparing for it and of course, you know, the 3,000 applicants show up for like 35 jobs. And uh, so it's really like an elimination process. They try to weed out the undesirables and they, you know, they do all these things. But before that, I mean, it's it's a very, um, you have to really prepare for the test. Uh, physical The physical agility is very demanding. And uh, you have to be in shape. You have to be ready for the test. You can't just say, okay, next week I'm going to take the test, and that's it. We started preparing for this exam probably about a year before. And uh, by the time, you know, the the date rolled around to take the test, I mean, we were in excellent physical condition. We were running, you know, five miles with uh, backpacks on our back with weights in them and climbing up the hills and mountains and everything. And so we really took it seriously. We really wanted to do it, you know. And uh, the day came for the test, the exam. You know, we took the uh, written exam, and if you pass that, uh, they would invite you back to take the agility. And then if you pass that, you know, you have to go for a physical exam, and 
they give you a drug test and a lie detector test. I guess it's a polygraph test they give you. And like I said, you know, they try to weed out people along the way so that they have a workable list that they can uh, that they can hire off of. And in the end, uh, after all was said and done, uh, I made it through that entire process, and I think there was a list of about 200 people that could be uh, chosen off that list for a firefighting job. So I thought for sure, you know, I was going to get hired and uh, because of my background in fire science, and I, but it wasn't like that at all. Um, uh, at the time, uh, there, was a, um, there was a minority ruling uh, from one of the judges in the court systems in New Haven. It said that they had to have two for one, you know, two minorities for every one uh, guy to um, fill the, the vacancies. So that pretty much uh, killed my chance of getting on on the first shot, you know. So the list ran out, and uh, two years later, um, they gave the test again. And so uh, I took it again. And in the meantime, I was still working at the insurance company and uh, hoping this time would be the charmer, you know, that I'd get on. And went through the whole process all over again. And right at the last minute before they... uh, decided to um, appoint guys. They had a hiring freeze. And so (laughs) they didn't hire anybody off of that list. And, of course, the list is only good for, I think, two years. And then after that, uh, it dies off, and then they have to give another test. So here it was the third time around. I think it was almost over almost an eight-and-a-half-year period um, that uh, this, this happened. I ended up taking the, the test again. Only this time, uh, I was determined to to get this job, you know. And um, as it turned out, uh, that was the charmer. The third time was a charmer for me. And my friend who had, had taken the exam with me, he actually uh, was appointed in the class right before me. So he actually got on the job before me, and then I came in after him. But uh, then I started the training program which was uh, very rigorous training. You know, they give you an extensive, uh, I think it's, I came on in July of 1986. And it was uh, July, August, September. So 12 weeks of, uh, of firefighting training at the academy. And then on the graduation day, they have a big ceremony and uh, you get your assignment. Where are you going to go? And so, uh, you know, I was appointed to, uh, I was assigned to, I should say, uh, an engine company that was in the city that was right on the border of a very volatile area that was constantly going to fires all the time. And um, so when I got into the firehouse, you know, um, it's very, um, how shall I put this? It's 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 very interesting because uh you the firefighters that are there they they really don't know what kind of a guy you are until you prove yourself on the proving you know the fire the fire ground is the proving ground to see if you have the right stuff uh and they don't want you know they, they naturally they want someone who's going to be uh, a good firefighter so that you know they could work with them um and so when I first went in there I felt a little alienated you know that I was a, a rookie um and they, rookies have to go through this probationary period, and uh, it's like a it's like a, a hazing where you have to do certain things and uh, to get their approval. But um, the first night I was in the firehouse, uh, I stayed up till about one o'clock, and uh, the captain came up and he was going to get a drink of water in the kitchen, and he said, "What are you doing up?" He said, "Just." Uh, you know, just go to sleep. He said, they know how to get in touch with us with the alarm and everything. And I was so tired, you know, by that time I said, yeah, maybe I should, you know, go rest. And I went into the bunk room. The other guys were already in there at nine o'clock at night. I went in there and as soon as I put my head on the pillow, (laughs) the alarm came, the alarm went off and all the lights pop on. And it was like, Oh my God, here it is. First, first night in the firehouse. And, um, there was a report of a structure fire 
uh, it wasn't too far from where we were, uh, where our fire station was. And um, we jump on the back. At that time, we were still riding on the back step of the fire engine. So you were riding on the tailboards, and you could see uh, ahead. And as we made our way down the street, uh, I came into the firehouse in September 1986, and it was pretty cold. And I looked up, and, and the guy that was standing next to me on the back, he said, oh, yeah, that's definitely a job. That's what we call a job is like a working fire, you know. And um, we turned down uh, turned down the street and pulled up, and there's all hell is breaking loose. I mean, here it is like 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning, and the flames are blowing out of the uh, third-floor window, lapping out, hitting the trees. Uh, there was supposedly someone up inside there, and, uh, there was another guy uh, running across the street with a ladder. He was like a, a civilian who saw it. He brought up a, a, a rickety old ladder trying to set it up. Of course, it was no good. And um, so, you know, our job was to get in there and put the fire out. So my officer turned around very uh, calmly and said, okay, guys, let's go and uh, put our Scott Air Packs on, which is like a self-contained breathing apparatus. Uh, and... Um, we started lining in, you know, going in the front door and trying to make our way up the stairs. And as we made our way up to the second floor landing, I mean, it's completely obscured with smoke. It's completely black, just varying degrees of darkness. And um, when we got up make, to make the turn, now we're, we're, we're lugging this, this charged hose line up with us, you know, and it's very awkward and it's bulky and uh, it's hot and, we're trying to make up our way to the, to the landing where the fire is, and all of a sudden the whole the whole ceiling collapses and falls. All the debris falls right on top of us, like we're trapped underneath all of the uh, wire mesh and uh, electrical wiring and plaster and everything. And uh, in my mind, I'm I'm reciting the Hail Mary <laughs> or the Our Father, and um, figuring that was going to be it. We're going to First time out, I'm going to get killed. And uh, my captain was nudging us to, or, you know, to f move forward, you know, forging, to f forge forward, you know, keep going. And um, we finally got our, made our way through the wreck, the, the mess, and uh, we got to the landing. And uh, the door where the fire was had burned off, and you could hear it crackling around in there, rolling around. And we, I started hitting it with, uh, with a line. And uh, before too long, the fire was knocked down, and I was baptized into Father Fire. <laughs> and uh, we saw the sunrise that morning, and um, I was packing the hose, and everybody was uh, ribbing me, you know, like, oh, you still want to be a fireman? And, you know, yeah, of course, yeah. And right then and there, I knew that I was accepted uh, with the guys, and, and they became very close with me throughout my career. And um, they knew that I could do what I had to do when the time came uh, to do it. So, you know, it was it was a very, uh, very interesting period of my life uh, doing that, starting off like that. Wow. You you really were put through a lot um, trying to get into this career. And I just think it's amazing um, how you worked very hard, taking the test three times. You were very devoted and, you know, and the fact that you went right into it the first night, that is amazing. Like, that, wow. Yeah. I mean, there's um, no words. There's, a, there's something that uh, a retired uh, chief of the New York City Fire Department, this goes way back to the 1800s, and he said, it's a noble profession, uh, one that stimulates us to deeds of daring even of supreme sacrifice. And that's true. That's very true. Um, I think it was Chief Croker from the New York City Fire Department. He, he said those words. And it is. It's a, it's a noble profession to be in. Um, when I first got on the job, all the guys on the job were saying, ah, oh, it's a dirty, thankless job, you know, which many times it is. I mean, uh, it's it's very dirty. You can come back completely uh you know, full of smoke and soot and everything. Um, but it is a, a noble thing that they do, and it doesn't happen all the time. 
But when it happens, it's very unique uh, that you're able to be an integral part of saving somebody or uh, extending their life, you know, by uh, rescuing them in, in a very precarious situation. It, it doesn't happen all the time, like I said, but um, throughout my career, uh, it happened, you know, on, on many occasions. And uh, it's just very gratifying to be able to do that, that kind of work. It is dangerous work. You know, sometimes it's extremely dangerous, but, um, you know, if you, you can't go into work uh, every day thinking about the death thing hanging over your head because if you do, you're not going to be any good to anybody. So, you know, you just uh, go to work and you, you pray and hope that everything goes well and and then uh, you, you start your tour. We, we We used to work three nights on which were three 14-hour nights, and then we'd have three days off, and then we'd return on days, and those would be three 10-hour days. So it would be uh, three on, three off, three on, three off. And it averaged around a 42-hour work week. So, uh, you know, they, they would give us 42 hours on average for the week. And um, that's how we did it. And it's really weird because on the days that everybody else is going to work, you know, the civilians – are getting heading into work, you're on your days off, like a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you have off. Then you have to go into the firehouse Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night, you know. And uh, and you'd be there all, you know, throughout the night and the next morning. Um, and if you went in on a weekend, you knew that you were going to be going to fires because that area that I was assigned to, uh, it was a very volatile area. A lot of, um, a lot of fires down there. And not only fires, but... Um, there was a lot of uh, drug overdoses, uh, stabbings, shootings. Every night, every night when you came to work, there was something going on. And uh, I remember one time we were taking up from a job. Uh, it was about 4 o'clock in the morning, and these late-night bars were just getting out. And uh, a fight broke out, uh, a gunfight broke out in, in the street. And they started shooting. And it, the the bullets were flying all over the place, and uh, I guess one of the bullets just barely missed us. And uh, the police came, you know, they they checked the trajectory and everything, and they said, "Oh, don't worry about it. They weren't shooting at you. It was just a, it was just a stray, a stray bullet, you know." And um, they had Teflon uh, coated bullets so that they would pierce like you know metal. And it, I guess it, it ricocheted off the curb and it went through this pickup truck in one side of the door and out the other. And My God, it was unbelievable. And they were just fighting because of, of drug wars. You know, they, they didn't want anybody on their turf and they were trying to keep it, you know, to them, you know. And that's what they were fighting about. It's just crazy. Uh, I've got so many stories that, that you, you wouldn't... I was thinking about writing a book uh, because um, some of the things that have happened that you know, people would not believe... You know, um, it just that happens, you know, every day. Well, you know, just about, you know, we were and I didn't realize it at first when I first got on the fire department because I, I knew that, you know, this is our job and this is what we we're doing. We we're supposed to be doing. And uh, I never really thought about it other than that that was my job. And then I used to come home and talk to my family and my friends and stuff at outings and picnics and things. And they'd say, my God, you know, that's unbelievable. And we'd say, well, that, you know, that was just, uh, you know, just what we were called to do, you know. And they said, well, you should you should definitely write a book about it. And I was thinking about it. I, I actually started putting my material together to write one. Um, but, you know, I got involved with other projects and uh, it got sidetracked. But it's something I'm still thinking about, you know, putting together at some point. Yeah, I think you should consider writing a book, um, especially with all you know everything that you went through. Because anyone out there that's wanting to become a firefighter, um, it would probably interest them, you know, to read and you know educate them. Yeah, yeah. You know, when I was in college, uh, I was doing my senior research project, and uh, I was doing a comparative study um, from a small municipal fire department. Uh, to a large munis a large uh, city big city fire department and so uh one of my colleagues and I we went down to uh, New York City and this was back in the 70s 
when uh, the Bronx was burning. It was uh, just unbelievable amount of fires that were occurring because of uh, civil unrest and urban decay and riots and everything. And um, so we actually went to uh, Engine 82 and Ladder 31 in the South Bronx. And we stayed there and we did our, uh, you know, we did our study there. And we actually, uh, you know, rode on the apparatus with them and we went to the fires and uh, we lived there in the firehouse. We ate with them and it was just an incredible experience. I I really will never forget that. That was a quite a quite an experience. Um the uh the guys they were all big brawling, you know, husky guys, strong guys. And I remember them saying to me, uh, remember if you go on the subway it's safety in numbers. Like like they would all stay together and, and be as a group, you know, so that nobody would bother them or try to uh you know attack them or anything. And uh it happened a couple of times where we went to fires and there was uh you know, it was this like a brownstone was on fire inside and these uh this group of uh unsavory uh people who were outside and they would deliberately like try to cause a problem. And the firefighters were just doing their work, you know. And uh they would trip over the hose and make a big deal out of it and make a ruckus and uh and then I remember uh, there was like a large crowd approaching the guys, you know. And uh, I remember the officer got on his uh, radio, called for, uh, it was a special signal that they used. And um, next thing you know, there were fire firefighters and fire engines coming from all different parts of the city. They were all converging in on that one particular area. And when they saw how many guys were there they outnumbered them they just kind of backed off and walked away but uh and they go those guys got there pretty quick too you know they were probably in the neighborhood in the area and um you know they're just trying to start trouble start a riot and uh that's how they used to quell those problems (laughs) guys would you know they would outnumber them but uh there was a book written it was called a report from engine company 82 and that, that's the firehouse that I was at. And the the, uh, the author, Dennis Smith, he just recently passed away. He was a really a wonderful guy. And it was about his life experience in the firehouse there. And uh, they, the guys that were in that firehouse, they used to uh, put in for R&R. You know, they would, they would try to get a reassignment to go someplace slower, to a slower house, and they could relax for a little bit. Um because they were constantly going, those guys, all the time, you know. And New Haven had its time period when we were going through that very similar situation. We had riots in the city, and uh, they were trying to burn everything down, all the vacant buildings. And uh, it was a very volatile, you know, time. Uh, I I was I, I got to see some of that. Um, and, you know, then with the advent of our – we had a – a very, very good uh, arson investigation unit. And they would come out and uh, they would do a very, very good job of figuring out what happened and how and how, and reconstruct it. Uh, you know, they would, the fires were mostly set. You know, a lot of these fires were set for arson for the money and things like that. So, you know, once they got the, uh, the arson squad came in, the fires started, you know, dying down a little bit. Every now and again, you'd get, you know, an accidental fire, which would be, you know, tragic sometimes. But that's the other thing, too. You know, when you're in the fire department, you're undoubtedly going to come across times when um, there's absolutely nothing that you can do. No matter what you try to think you can do, you can't because it's too, it's, it's beyond your capability. And uh, in the academy, they told us, you know, that you have to remember um you're not god you know you're not you're not god and you're just doing you're following the rules and regulations of the of the fire department and you do what you're supposed to do and you can only do what what uh you can do you know and sometimes uh it's very sad you know there's a lot of sadness sometimes associated with the job 
And um, you'd go back to the firehouse and everybody would be very quiet. Nobody would really talk to each other that much. And everybody would go in their own corner and just kind of contemplate what had just happened. And, uh, and it was very, uh, you know, I don't know how you would say it, but you'd really come back thinking that, you know, you're lucky to be alive and uh, and other people are not so fortunate sometimes, you know. Um but the guys do, I think they joke around a lot in the firehouse because they like to relieve that kind of stress. You know, they don't want to keep it hanging over their heads all the time. So they they do outrageous things and jokes and and uh, try to relieve the uh, stress and keep it uh, light, you know. Um, and then if there, there's the flip side of it is when you do a really good job and uh, and you're able to make a difference in somebody else's life and... You know, those guys, they really like to downplay it a lot, but, you know, it's really a very great thing that they do. And they recognize you for your uh, efforts. Um, once every so many years, they have an award ceremony, and uh, everybody comes out, and those people who are who did certain things are recognized for their accomplishments and their achievements, and it's a very nice day for everybody. You, know, you come out, and you're dressed blue uniforms, and... Uh, they recapitulate what happened, you know, in the uh, citation they, they give you, and um, it's a really great time. It's a really great time for 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 the guys, you know. Do you have um, any stories of saving anyone or any pets or anything like that? Oh sure, yeah, yeah. There's I have quite a few stories. That's why I was thinking about writing a book because uh, I have a lot of stories to tell. Um, it was this one particular fire. Um, I wasn't even really supposed to be working that day or that night, actually. Um, but every so often, you'll get a phone call uh, from the uh, the deputy chief, and they'll say, uh, "Would you like to work overtime tonight?" You know, and you can't really turn it down because one night in uh, in the firehouse is worth like about a half a week's pay because they pay you time and a half to come in. And so you very rarely turn it down unless you absolutely can't make it, you know. So I said, yeah, you know, I'll come in, you know. So uh, they sent me to a different firehouse. They sent me to a station all the way on the other side of the city. And I had worked there before, you know, and I knew some of the guys. And um, so, um, you know, I got there and I was changing into my work uniform and uh, in the locker room. And the guys were all talking about the meal that they were going to be making. So that area is in a predominantly Hispanic area, and uh, they were going to be cooking up some rice and beans. You know, some of the guys um, on the job, you know, they were really good cooks, you know. And so they asked me if I wanted to be in on the meal, and I said, oh, yeah, definitely, definitely, you know. So we were just talking about that, and it was right about 6 o'clock when they have the tone test. So the tone test, at every every day, twice a day, at 8 a.m. and 6 p.m., they do a tone test in the fire, all the firehouses throughout the city to test the system and make sure it works, everything is good. And then they go to each individual firehouse with using a, a direct line and they confirm, you know, that the test was good and they continue on, right? So we're in the locker room there and the tone, I thought it was the tone test coming in because it was right around six o'clock. But when a fire comes in, it's, it's four tones and, uh, it, it came in as four tones, you know, and then they said, you know, instead of saying, uh, instead of saying this is the, the radio test, they said the fire location. <laughs> so we knew that there was a fire and uh, it was right, you know, right in our area. We were going to be the first ones in, first do there. And uh, we jump on the rig and we fly down the street. And uh, sure enough, you know, this place is uh, on fire and on the upper floors. And so we started lining in with the hose line, and, we, and this place was all cut up. It was a big brick apartment building, and they had made several different modifications to it over the years, you know, making apartment units, uh, and they, it was like all zigzaggy, like a, uh, a jigsaw puzzle trying to get in there. And uh, we finally got into the fire room and uh, knocking down the, the main body of fire, and of course, again, you know, it's completely obscured by darkness. Uh, 
can't see anything, it's very hot. And uh, my Vibra alarm, which is the alarm that's attached to your Scott Air Pack, was going off. And this is a, a, an indication that you're running low on air, approximately two minutes of air left. So you have to make your way out of the building or make your way to a window where you can get air because you can't breathe in a, an environment like that. It's too thick. And um, so I, I started making my way uh, in the room, hoping I would reach a window. And I was feeling around and uh, with my gloved hand, and I felt a window, and it was already up a little bit. It was up about maybe 10 inches. And so I threw the sash all the way up, and I took my mask off, and I stuck my head out the window to get some air. And then when I, I happened to look down, and there was a cat, all I could see was a pair of paws on the ledge, on the concrete ledge. Now, I was four stories up, or three stories. And um, mackerels, the cat's hanging by his paws. I don't know how long he was there, so I reached down behind him, and I grabbed him by his mane, and I lifted him up, and he offered no resistance whatsoever. And I opened, I unbuckled my coat, and I put him inside my coat, my turnout coat, and I started making my way out to the, to the outside of the building. And I remember another friend of mine, uh, he was on my division. He was working overtime that night, too. And he was assigned to the emergency unit, you know, the medical unit. And I knew he was at that fire. So um, I saw him, and I, I yelled over to him. I said, you know, Myron, grab a, uh, a pediatric mask, which is a little tiny. I don't know if you've ever seen an oxygen mask for a, an infant, a baby, but it's a very small one. And I, I knew that this cat was, like, very... His mouth and nose were full of black soot and smoke. So I knew he, would, he took a lot of smoke in. And I was going to try to get him uh, some oxygen. We brought the uh, the mask. He ran over with the mask and the oxygen. And I started giving the cat um, some oxygen. And he wasn't really responsive. He was kind of just laying there. And I was hoping that it was, I wasn't too late. But, you know, he started to respond to the oxygen. And then, uh, you know, he was doing much better. And uh, the people were all outside the building, and they were on the other side of the street on the curb. And uh, I saw this woman over there, and she was crying. And I think she thought that her cat died in the fire, and this was her cat I had in my arms. And uh, I brought her over to her, and it was like I was giving her a bar of gold. Like it was like the greatest thing in the world that she could ever get, because I don't think she had much. A lot of these people are destitute. They don't really have many belongings or anything, personal belongings, but, you know, they do have their animals and they love them, you know. And so I was able to return the cat to its rightful owner, and uh, she was so grateful. I mean, it was like, I'm glad I came into work that night. You know, I didn't realize that was going to happen. Um, you know, that's, that's one of the stories. I mean, and then the next day I came in, and it was on the front page of a new, of a newspaper, and somehow or another, I think one of the photographers, the newspaper photographer, was across the street with a telephoto lens. I didn't even know he was taking the pictures, and um, it, my my picture was plastered on the front page of the newspaper, and uh, so the guys in the firehouse they knew, you know, they knew right away when they got the morning paper that I had done this. And of course, when I went to my locker, there was a big, huge stuffed. Uh, you know, animal, stuffed cat animal on top of my locker. And uh, somebody put about 25 cans of cat food <laughs> on top of the locker. You know, they just, they, they joke around. They try to make light of it, you know. But, uh, and I, I had to live that down, you know, that I saved a cat. <laughs> but, yeah. Well, I think it says a lot for you as a person, um, save the cat, because it's, it, People that, you know, love animals and, you know, care about animals, you know, that they do things like that. It, it tells your character, you know what I mean? Like you're definitely a good person and you've done a great service over the years um, with what you did. I don't know. I would never have been able to do that job. Um, there's no way. I just think I would have been too scared, <laughs> you know, first off to go into a fire. I don't think I could do it. Yeah. So I give you a lot of kudos. Um, I think that that would be a 
very, very difficult job. And, you know, one of the questions I have is, um, do you ever have any flashbacks from, like, living this over the years? Um, you know, when I first retired off the job, um, I used to wake up in the middle of the night because that was just normal to have to get up and go to a fire. And um, there's really no set time to sleep when you're in the firehouse. I mean, they say you can go to bed after 9 p.m., but if you get a call, you know, you're on duty, you have to go. And um, so in the first few weeks of my retirement, I used to wake up out of bed, and then I used to say to myself, well, wait a minute, I don't have to worry about that anymore, you know, because I don't have to worry about the tone blowing me out of bed. This tone that would go off is, is designed to vibrate your eardrums in, in your inner ear so that it would wake you up, you know. It's, it's like a certain decibel that would uh, wake you up. Even if you're in a deep sleep, it would it would wake you up. And, of course, the tones would come in, the lights would go on, and all hell would break loose, you know, instantaneously. And so I got uh, the first few weeks after I retired, I was still doing that. And then after that, I kind of realized that, geez, you know, I don't have to go to fires anymore. And I could sleep through the whole night, and I could wake up in the morning refreshed. And uh, so, you know, but every so often, not very frequently anymore, but every so often, I would have a flashback of a fire that I had gone to. And it was so real. It's like you're actually, you don't know if it's a dream or if you're really there when you're in a sleep, deep sleep, you know. And uh, you wake up and say, oh, God, I'm, I'm so glad that I'm, I'm, I'm just dreaming that, you know. Because things happen um, and, uh, you know, it, you, it impacts your brain. I guess it, it etches into your brain for your whole life, you know. So every now and again, I, I will get, you know, some, um, like this one particular instance when I'm th- that I'm thinking about, um, I-90, I-91 is an inter- interstate highway that goes from Maine to Florida. I'm sorry, it goes from Maine to New Haven. And New Haven it branches off to Interstate 95, and 95 goes all the way down to, to Florida. So they're they're very busy highways, you know. And um, we got a call to go uh, onto the highway for a motor vehicle accident. And we get, you know, we get on the highway, and all the traffic is backed up. Now it's pouring, pouring rain like cats and dogs, right? And it's actually. Um, we have to make our way through all the traffic and there's trucks, tractor trailers and cars and everything. And we're trying to come up the side and it's a while before we get there, you know, and we finally get there and all these huge tractor trailers are stopped. Like it's a four lane highway. Commerce is completely stopped, shut down and four lane highway. And there's a woman standing in front of her car. The car is a total wreck, complete total wreck. And she's standing there with a baby wrapped in in a blanket in the pouring rain, soaking wet. And I said, what the heck just happened? You know, and she, she was in a Mercedes, I guess it was a Mercedes Benz. And she got pushed into a, a, a truck in front of her and, and the truck behind her smashed into her. So the whole car the front and back of the car was completely crushed in. But these Mercedes are designed so that the cabin where the people are in, it kind of slides down underneath the front of the car. So, like, it stays intact, but it's not. It doesn't crush up. You know, it's designed to do this. And she escaped with not, without any injuries. And it was horrifying to see that, you know. And then, of course, right away, you want to try to get them inside the fire engine where it's warm because it was cold rain and they were soaked to the bone, you know. And um, we got them inside. And I don't think she even spoke English, if I remember correctly. She was a foreigner. And the baby, I was just looking at the baby, checking the baby out, making sure it was okay and everything. And here's everybody on the highway just standing there waiting to, for the highway to open up. And we're just, uh, you know, just checking her out and making sure that everything is okay. I said, wow, this is crazy, you know. They say, like, it's, uh, I don't know how many thousands of dollars it is per minute to shut down an interstate highway because you're shutting down commerce, you know. And, uh, of course, 
you know, then the tow trucks come and they, they move everything out of the way and they sweep broom sweep everything and then the highway opens up and they're on their way. But that I've had several dreams about that, you know, that, that accident. I don't know why, but uh, I guess it's just a frightening thought, you know, to think of something like that happening. Right. And if a fireman ever tells you, I was going to say, if a fireman ever tells you that they weren't, they're never afraid or they're not afraid of what they're doing, you know, they're, they're not telling you the truth because um, it, is, it is very scary to do that job. Um, all of your natural senses are telling you, you know, you should not be going in here. You should be going the other way, not going into this environment. And then you have to actually force yourself to do what you have to do. Uh, they used to say it's hunk, hunker, hunker down, you know, hunker, hunker yourself down and do what you have to do. So it takes, um, a lot of chutzpah, I guess they call it, um, to, to do that job. And, uh, it's not easy. Sometimes it's not easy to do it, you know. Well, that, um, by you saying that, that's one of the questions I was going to ask. Like, what would you, what advice would you tell anyone out there that wants to become a firefighter, you know, going forward? Well, I know a lot of young guys today, you know, they get the bug in them to become a firefighter. And I think my best advice to a young coming in to the fire service would be to really adhere very closely to the rules and regs, the rules and regulations of the fire department um, because those rules and regulations are tried and true and they, over the years, and they'll give you your best chance of survival um, if you're following what you're supposed to be doing, I mean, you're not necessarily going to get killed. You know what I mean? There's no, there's no guarantees. But if you try to stray from that and you try to do your own thing, um, now you're in uncharted territory, uncharted waters, and, and just because that's the nature of the job, you know, it's not 100% uh, figured out all the time. And so you, you, know, you have to deviate from the norm. Um, but for the most part, you know, the things that are put in place uh, for you to, they're, they're there for your safety, you know, for you. for you. They don't, they, the officers used to say all the time, you know, in the training academy, if you, if you get, if you go in there to get somebody and you're not doing something right and you become a victim and now, now there's two of you in there. <laughs> so now we have to jeopardize more men to get two people out instead of, just one person that you were trying to rescue in the first place. So it's very, you know, it's a very interesting profession. I have to say that. Well, I think that is excellent advice for anyone out there that wants to become a firefighter. Um, we're almost out of time, but I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. You, you spread a lot of awareness and education on this career for anyone out there that's listening and if there's anything else that you want to tell the audience um the floor is yours right now well, i guess i would probably just like to say uh make sure that you know in october or at least once a year you know that you change the batteries in your smoke detectors because um those are really your first line of defense if you're sleeping at night and the fire starts you know you you don't really know about it and uh, those smoke detectors really do give you uh, the edge, you know, to get out of there if you have to. Um, and a lot of people just play it off. You know, they don't they don't even have batteries in the smoke detectors sometimes. I remember we used to go in there and, and check, you know, do fire and safety inspections, and the people would uh, not even have a battery in the smoke detector. They'd say, well, because it always goes off all the time when we're cooking. Well, put it in a different place then, you know. But don't not have a smoke detector. They're so inexpensive, and they, they do save lives. So, you know, people people should keep that in mind. Well, I think that's excellent advice, and thank you again for coming on. And till next time, I hope everyone out there has a blessed day. Take care. Thank you.
Are you feeling sluggish and feeling like you have no energy? Look no further. Kickstart your morning or afternoon and enjoy regulated, even energy that keeps you going without the crash or unwanted side effects of harsh stimulants used in typical energy drinks. Zero sugar, zero crash, sustainable energy, hydration, and fat burn. You can find this product, which is called Energize Go, at healthfirst.relive.com. Again, healthfirst.relive.com. Now, what are you waiting for? Go try Energize Go. I want to give out a shout out to the Little Saint Show. Make sure you tune in every Thursday at 6 p.m. Pacific time on Facebook or on his website, littlesaintshow.com. Hello, Voice for Victim podcast wants you. Voice for Victims podcast is dedicated to educating the community about various aspects of victimization and giving victims an opportunity to speak up. Currently, the podcast is heard nationally on Thursday nights. It is carried on Blog Talk, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Amazon, and Apple. If you support what Voice for Victims is doing, please contact voiceforvictimspodcast.com and a representative will contact you with further details. Thanks for listening and your support. Voice for Victims Podcast. Stand up for what is right and leave a legacy behind for others to follow. By Crystal Starnes. Always stand up and make a difference for yourself or someone else. Don't ever suffer in silence. I just want to say thank you to Gerald Fianforelli for his service for all these years. Take care, everyone.